Uh, but uh, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9 one more time. We've been in this chapter for the past couple of weeks, and we're going to finish it this morning as well as finish the sermon uh, that we started last Sunday. So we started a sermon last Sunday that I titled From Repentance to Relationship, and we're going we're gonna to work our way through the rest of this chapter and finish that sermon this morning. And I titled it that because, because that's really what this entire chapter takes us through. Because it started in those first three verses of them repenting of their sins. And so they, they come out of chapter 8 and the, the word of God has been opened to them and explained to them. And they've been reading God's word and they go through the, that feast season and, and it, it draws them close to the Lord. And they get into chapter 9 and they begin repenting of their sins, their father's sins, the spiritual idolatry that had led them to be taken captive as a nation. So they understood kind of that history and, and, and what happened. And so they were in the process of getting right with the Lord. And as part of getting right, they prayed this national prayer of confession that outlined the relationship that, that they had with God. It, it outlined, we'll, we'll see much of the details of it today, but it outlined all that God had done from the, for them from their inception up to their current point. And so the whole relationship that the nation of Israel had with God is outlined through this chapter. And it's just a great picture for us because it also outlines the type of relationship that we are to have with the Lord as well. And so we started on that last week. We started through that prayer. So let me recap. Since this is a two-part sermon, um, let's do a little bit of review. And let me recap what we went through last Sunday and Try to bring everyone up to speed, especially uh, if you weren't here. If you weren't here and you want to get all of it, uh, you can find it online. But let me kind of bring us up to where, where, we'll, where we'll start today as we see them begin to move from this state of repentance to true relationship with the Lord. And it started with their recognition of, of his perfection. We, we saw that specifically in verses 4 and 5 and, and into verse 6. But they come to him and they confess to him and they set up a couple different groups. They confess their sins to him because he's the only one that we can do that to. That, that, it, that, it, that it means anything. That, it, that it's worth anything. And they exalted his name. And we looked at his name a little bit. And, but even more importantly than that, how he has exalted his word above his name. But they were doing all of that in acknowledgement of who he was as the one true perfect God. And then at the beginning of verse 6, they said, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. And we learned last week that, that God is special. And he is singular in that specialness. He is set apart from all other gods because he alone is holy. They're, all of the other gods are false gods. There's only one true God. And he alone is holy. And that means that anything else that is holy, like us, is because of him and when we are in him. And that's really what this point, this recognition of his perfection was all about. That's what it, it was all culminating towards, understanding and acknowledging the holiness of God so that we set him apart in our life. Right? That's what being holy means, being set apart. And setting him apart is how we build a relationship with him. You need to know that, that a full relationship, one that God intends for us to have, it's not possible without doing this, without setting him apart in his appropriate place. And one of the primary ways we do that is through prayer. That's exactly what the children of Israel were doing here in Nehemiah chapter 9. And, and I told you last week that we come to God in prayer for that purpose, to set him apart as unlike any other to express our love towards him and dependence upon him, to communicate with him in relationship. And when you do that, you are able to experience all that God has for you in that relationship. It can be exactly what God intends. So after recognizing his perfection, they began rehearsing the past. And they began going through the story of their history as a nation and documenting God's hand throughout their history. We're going to see the bulk of it actually uh, this week. 
But this is something that, that we need to grasp as well because it's, it is good for us to trace God's hand in our own personal history. It's good to trace God's hand in church history. And here's why. Because when we re- recognize him at work in the past and we see how he has worked in our lives and, and in the church, then you can more clearly see how he wants to work in the present and in the future, particularly in your own life. And that's what we see throughout this prayer narrative, exactly how God works in our life. Because it's how he worked through the nation of Israel's life. And they're a good example from us. We know this from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Romans 15. We looked at that verse last week. What we can learn in the church age from what God did through through the history of the nation of Israel. And I told you last week that what we see through this prayer are seven attributes of God and, and they're specific to, to Israel's past, but they make up and they picture the relationship that we have with him. We looked at the first three last week. And those first three are he creates, he calls, and he covenants. So in verse 6, the children of Israel begin rehearsing the history all the way back to, to creation, all the way the history of time, and then specifically their history as a nation. And they start with the creation story. Look, let's look at it again in verse 6. Thou even thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. And creation is where all life begins. And for us, spiritually, that's where our spiritual life begins, in creation, there, and, and our, that's where our relationship with God begins. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we looked at this last week, says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so God creates in us something new at the point that we get saved. And, and we learn, you know, I'm just going through this very quickly, but we learned the logical conclusion of that with God being the creator. And assuming that's true, which we have to because the Bible says it, then he's the owner. That's the logical conclusion. That means we have no rights other than what he gives us. And the primary task he has given us is to glorify him with our life. So then next we see that he calls. Because after God created the world, some 12 chapters later in the book of Genesis, he chose a man to start a nation. And he called out Abram, Nehemiah 9-7, says, Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abram and brought us him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave us him the name of Abraham. And he called Abram out, and, and in that process he changed his name, and through that name change God gave him a new identity. And at the point that you and I get saved, God calls us out too, and he gives us a new identity and we get a new calling on our life, there is a purpose. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, Who has saved us, speaking of God, and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And, and again, that general purpose that God has given to us is to glorify him. But God has given each and every one of us a specific way to do it. We all have specific and special gifts. We all have different circles of influence. So the question is, do you know how it is that God expects you to glorify him with your life? And I hope you do. I hope you know exactly what it is that God wants you doing. But if not, we can help you. That's what the church is for. We work together as one, each with our own individual gifting and our own individual roles all for the same purpose, all for God's glorification. And sometimes that work gets tough, but God doesn't expect us to serve him without sustaining us also along the way. So we have the third attribute of God in this national prayer. He covenants. He covenants together with his people. Look at verse 8. Speaking of Abraham, and foundest his heart faithful before thee and madest a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and has performed thy words, for thou art righteous. God made a covenant with Abraham. It's an eternal covenant. It it involved 
land, the land grant for the nation of Israel. It's much more involved in that. But, but the picture for us in our relationship with the Lord is, is that God gives us promises out of his word. And God made promises for the nation of Israel that were specific to them, but God gives us promises too. And and, and he covenants, he promises with us to sustain us as we live out his calling. And that's what those promises are designed to do. But as we talked about last week, many of them have conditions. His promises for the most part aren't unconditional, not all of them. We have to do our part, but when we do, God will surely do his. And that's where we left off. So we're going to pick it back up in verse 9. And we have a lot of chapter left, all the way down through verse 38. But we're going to read through all of it. Um, because, because I think the reading of the word of God is important. We, we saw that in Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, but I, I want you to see the remaining attributes of God and how they work through this narrative of their history. And they sh- it shows us how to move from repentance to relationship. So this is long. We're going to read verses 9 through 38. Um, so stay with me and follow along uh, in the reading. But starting in verse 9, continuing through this rehearsal of their past, here we read. And to see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard us their cry by the Red Sea, and showed us signs and wonders upon Pharaoh, and on all his servants, and on all the people of his land. For thou knewest that they dealt proudly against them, so didst thou get thee a name as it is this day. And thou didst divide the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And the persecutors thou threwest into the deeps, as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, thou ledest them in the day by a cloudy pillar, and in the night by a pillar of fire, to give them light in the way wherein they should go. Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai and spakest with them from heaven and gavest them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And madest known unto them thy holy Sabbath and commandest them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses thy servant. Gavest them bread from heaven for their hunger. Brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst and promised them that they should go in to possess the land which thou hast sworn to give them. But they and our fathers dealt proudly Harden their necks and hearken not to thy commandments. And refuse to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. Yea, when they had made them a molten calf and said, This is thy God that brought us thee up out of Egypt and had wrought great provocations. Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. A pillar of cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way. Neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein they should go. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth. And gavest them water for their thirst. Yea, forty years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness. So they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old, their feet swelled not. Moreover, thou gavest them kingdoms and nations, and didst divide them into corners. So they possessed the land of Sion, and the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Their children also multiplied as thou as the stars of heaven, and broughtest them into the land, concerning which thou hast promised to their fathers that they should go in to possess it. So the children went in and possessed the land, and thou subduedest before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gavest them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. They took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards and olive yards and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness." Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy prophets which testified against them to turn, thee, turn them to thee and they wrought great provocations. Therefore thou deliverest them into the hand of their enemies who vexed them and in the time of their trouble when they cried unto thee thou heardest them from heaven and according to thy manifold mercies thou gavest them saviors who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest... They did evil again before thee. 
Therefore leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies, and testifiedest against them that thou mightest bring them again under thy law. Yet they dealt proudly, and hearkened not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, and withdrew the shoulder, and hardened their neck, and would not hear. Yet many years didst thou forbear them, and testified against them by the Spirit and thy prophets, Yet would they not give ear? Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them. For thou art a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who keepest covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before thee that hath come upon us, on our kings, on our princes, on our priests, on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all thy people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Howbeit thou art just in all that thou hast brought upon us, for thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, nor our fathers kept thy law, nor hearkened unto thy commandments, and thy testimonies wherewith thou didst testify against them. For they have not served thee in their kingdom, and in thy great goodness that thou gavest them, and in the large and fat land which thou gavest before them, neither turned they from their wicked works. Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yieldeth much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. Whew. All right, take a deep breath. We made it. We made it through. Uh, but I, I hope you see in there just the back and forth of all that God did for them and then how they still dealt proudly and stiffened their necks. And the, the goodness of God was displayed over and over his mercy, his, his willingness to pardon. And yet they kept going back to their sin. And we're going to see that, that sometimes we are Israel and they are us. But let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Um, just thank you for the story, the beautiful picture it paints. Um, of all that you did and all that you are. Um, you were for the nation of Israel and Lord, you are for us. And, and so Lord, I pray that you use this in our life to, for us to examine where we need to repent and get back to relationship with you so that we don't deal proudly, that we don't stiffen our neck. Lord, that we can learn from the nation of Israel. And Lord, we can be obedient servants, obedient children. Lord, that, that have a relationship with you that, that you desire, that others see, and that therefore you get glory from. Lord, please use this word in your life, in our life this morning. Lord, teach us to be more and more like you. Lord, I pray that everything that is said is true to your word, and I pray that it is glorifying and honoring to you. And Lord, we will commit this time uh, to focus on, on you and all that you have for us. Lord, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so obviously we have, a, we have a lot of verses to cover. Uh, we read a ton of verses there. And so, you know, what we're going to look at through the rest of the time is, is going to kind of be a flyby, right? We're not going to drill into the specifics of each and every verse. There's so much that we could do there, but we could, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this verse, and that's not my goal for this. But I, wa I want you to see this picture that's painting. This, these seven attributes of God that, that he showed through the nation of Israel that he shows with us too. And so we're going to pick it up right where we left off. We went through those first three that he creates, he calls, he covenants. And then fourth, what we see is he's compassionate. We see his compassion specifically starting in verse 9 down through verse 21. The children of Israel begin recounting compassionate act after compassionate act by the Lord, even in the midst of their rebellion. And we're going to get to their rebellion later on, so hold on to that. But you see the word, as you go through verses 9 through 21, 
You see the little conjunction word and. You see the word and used over and over again. And those ands denote something new and compassionate that God did for them. And it all occurred during their time in the wilderness. During their time of wandering, mostly marked by disobedience and murmuring. And this whole catalog of things that God did for Israel, they show us the compassion of our Heavenly Father. This is a prayer of Israel's backsliding, but also God's goodness. We see that in there over and over again from hearing their cry in Egypt and convincing Pharaoh to let them go to making a way of exodus by splitting the Red Sea and yet closing it when the the Egyptian armies were chasing behind, then leading them in the wilderness by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night to show them the way and giving them the law to live by and a way to be made right with him and then feeding them with manna every day, providing water in miraculous ways, ultimately showing them the land that they had been promised. And it culminates in in verse 21 that says he sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness and they didn't even need new clothes and their feet didn't even swell. Yeah, I mean, praise the Lord. I don't even know what, that's so interesting to me. It's like, and their feet swelled not. Like of all the things he chose to say, it's like, well, you know what? It's, it's hard walking 40 years in the wilderness. And your feet would get a little tired. And your feet would swell a little bit. Theirs never did. They didn't have to get new clothes. And he sustained them for those 40 years. And yet they weren't, they weren't good to him in the way that he was good to them. Look again at verse 17. There we see both sides of this coin. Israel's rebellion and God's compassion. And Israel refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them. The wonders that he did. They weren't even mind, they took them for granted. They weren't mindful, they didn't even think about all God was doing for them. What'd they do instead? But harden their necks. And the rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and forsookest them not. Listen, that right there is the God that we serve. And I know that, that this verse is, is for Israel, certainly. It's in the Old Testament. It's directed directly at Israel. And yet a God who is ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and forsakes us not is the God of the New Testament too. This is even a, a great gospel-centered verse. And 2 Peter 3.9 is a great cross-reference. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all, all should come to repentance. You see, God is ready to pardon. He is not willing that any should perish. But his compassion and his long-suffering, they're not only showed to the lost, it's, it's all showed to us as well. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. So he shows his long-suffering, his compassion on us and our salvation. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 6 and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. His kindness was showed to us in our past in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It showed to us in our present because we are presently seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it's also in the future in the ages to come. His kindness spans time. And it spans past, present, and future. Hasn't God been compassionate and long-suffering with you? I I could make the argument that the fact that you're sitting in this room today would say yes. And let me let you in on, on a little secret here. If he wasn't, 
And we wouldn't have a relationship with him. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we're no different than Israel when it comes to this. No matter how holy we think we are, no matter how much we think we, we've grown, we still don't have it all together. And we all have our good days and our bad days. But God never changes. He is exactly the same. And what is that? What's he like? Well, Psalm 86.15 says, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenty, plenteous in mercy and truth. That's who he is. But listen, here's what you have to understand. We should never confuse God's compassion for inattention or indifference. We should never confuse God's compassion for inattention or indifference. He knows what's going on and he cares. And praise the Lord that God is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. What you see in verses 9 through 21 is God giving Israel chance after chance after chance after chance. And praise the Lord that that's our God. But here's the interesting thing about new chances. They will always be there until they are not. You see, there is coming a day when the next chance that God gives you is your last chance. And none of us know when that is. So don't miss it. Take advantage of the chance that God is giving you today. He has given us so much. And he is giving us all the opportunity to to serve him and to glorify him with our life. In this prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9, you see the, a form of the word give 16 times. All in reference to what God gave Israel. Because God is a giver. There's no better evidence of, of that fact than the most popular verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. He gave us his son. And make no mistake about it, God is giving you the opportunity, the chance today to either enter into a relationship with him or build upon the one that you already have. Don't miss the chance that he's giving you today. The next attribute shows you exactly how that's possible, how God's giving you these opportunities the opportunity to have a relationship with him or build upon the existing one because fifth, he conquers. He's certainly compassionate, but he is a conquering God as well. Look back at verse 22 and let's see what God did for Israel. After all these compassionate acts through the 40 years in the wilderness, he sustained them through, through all that they went through now it's time to enter the promised land. Now it's time to go in to, 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 to get the land that God had given to them. And verse 22, what did he do through that time? Moreover, thou gavest them kingdoms and nation and didst devise them into corners so that they possessed the land of Sion, the land of the king of Heshbon, the land of Og, the king of Bashan. Their children also multiplied as thou the stars of heaven and broughtest them into the land concerning which thou hast promised to their fathers that they should go in to possess it. Right? So he, he, he leads them in these victories there and while they're still in the wilderness and they're going into the land and yet people possess that land. The Canaanites were there. And the Canaanites were some bad dudes. And some big old fellas with the Canaanites. And God gives it to them because he had promised it to them. In verse 24, so the children went in and possessed the land. Now subdued us before them, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave us them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land as they might do with them as they would. And they took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards and olive yards and, and fruit trees in abundance. This is the, the, the uh, land that flowed with milk and honey. So they did eat, but look at this next phrase. 
and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. And listen, we should always be thankful of God's great goodness to us. And we sang about it this morning, and we should be so thankful for that. But the danger, the danger in a, in a church like this is that we become filled and we become fat. And we're thankful for the goodness of God and how he's blessing us and blessing our lives. But we're not really delighting in him. What great victories it was that God gave Israel and he fought for them as they conquered all the enemies that were before them. He had promised them that land of Canaan and he held up his end of the deal. But when they got there, they got lazy. And, and the, the words there are interesting. They delighted themselves in thy great goodness. And if you do a study of the word delight, which I did, the, I don't even think this is in your, note, but in your notes, but 50 times you find the word delight in the Bible, 12 more times you find the word delightest in the Bible. The, you know what the only things that God tells us to delight in? First of all are him, Psalm 37, 4, delight thou in the Lord. The second thing, his word. Psalm 119. Over and over, delightest thou in thy law, delightest thou in thy statutes, delightest thou in thy commandments. Those are the two things. So we are to be thankful for his goodness. We are to recognize the goodness of God. But when we get lazy and fat and filled and we're delighting not in him, not in his word, but just all that he does for us. It's a dangerous place to be. No, we're to, to lie in him. Why? Because he's perfect. He's God alone. He created all of this. And he owns all of it. We're to serve him with our life. And how do we do that? We do that by delighting in his word. And the goodness that God shows us is just a natural byproduct of the relationship we are to have with him. And then we are to be thankful for that. And we are to acknowledge his goodness and be grateful. But when that's all we're delighting in in place of him, that's dangerous. And those Old Testament giants and those Old Testament enemies of Israel, they picture the New Testament enemies that we face. And we find those enemies. We've seen this before, but we find them in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It says, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we have our, our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, or by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And these two verses outline the enemies we face. We see we there's the, the course of this world. So we have the world and, and Satan's use of the world to, to fight against us. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, that's Satan and the spirit of Antichrist. And then we see in verse 3, the fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And so we have the world, the devil, and our flesh. And, and those are the enemies that we're fighting. And what we are fighting is sin from all three. So all three of them are trying to get us to sin. Because why? What sin do? Sin keeps us from God. And if you're, if you're lost and, and you never deal with the sin, well, then you die in your lost state, never reconciled to God. And if, if you are in Christ and you are saved, well, sin breaks our fellowship with God. And so that relationship that we're talking about needs to be restored. And so we're, we're fighting this, this aspect of sin. But here's what you have to know. God has already conquered sin and the wages of sin, which is death, according to Romans 6.23 and, and James 1.15. Right? It says, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. But Jesus conquered sin on the cross, and he conquered death in his resurrection. 
So that means if, if we are in Christ, then we have to. In Christ, we've defeated sin. Not us, not us personally, but because we are in Christ. It was the work of Christ. And yet, so many Christian lives do not reflect his victory. And people are walking around claiming the name of Christ for salvation, and yet are still a slave to sin. And it doesn't have to be that way. And, and the problem is that, that, one, people just don't really want to do what's right. And they want to live by their flesh, so they do. So that's one. But then you have a, a second group of people that, that they're just always fighting this fight. And it's, it's, the, it's the story of Israel, and they have good times and they have bad times, and, and it's just, it's always a fight, and they want to do what's right, but they can't. Or at least they think they can't. But the fact is, the reason why is because they don't really understand how a relationship with God works. So they don't know how to live in the victory that they have through Christ. And if that's you, I want you to know that there is only one path to truly deal with the sin in your life and experience that victory. The conquering of sin that's already been accomplished by Christ. And, and here's how it works. First, you just have to understand how to walk. Colossians 2.6 says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And how did you receive Christ? Simply by placing your faith in him and the finished work of Jesus so victory in the Christian life comes by walking in faith. And how do you do that? Well, Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, you have to let the word of God do the work in your life that only it can. And here's why. It's because of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, and it's what they tell us. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You see, sin comes from our imaginations and thoughts. And it's because imaginations and thoughts turn to, turn to actions, not the other way around. Sin starts in your mind, and it's conceived when you act upon those thoughts. So renewing your mind is the only real solution. Otherwise, you're just trying to fight the flesh with the flesh. And that's what many people do. They want to do right, they just can't seem to. But they want to, they desire it, so they end up fighting their flesh with their flesh. And I get it, it's good in theory. We're just not exactly sure how biblical it is. So for example, you have people who are dealing with sin, trying to gain victory over it, instead of walking in the victory that's already there, they give themselves a set of rules or set up a law to keep themselves from, from that sin. And while not sinning, is always better than sinning. <laughs> doing right is always better than not doing right. It's still not exactly the way God has designed it. When you're using physical tools to defeat your flesh, it's just fighting your flesh with your flesh. And you do it because you don't understand how your relationship with God works. And you think it's a physical fight when it's not. And I want to tell you that if you're doing it that way, it's not sustainable. Because at some point, you'll fall back. Because the flesh will only fight against the flesh for so long. And now again, I'm not saying doing that is all wrong. And if it's something especially that you need to do for a while because the temptation is too strong or you just need to get over a hump and you need to get good habits established, then, then fine, truly, do what you have to do. But, the end of, but at the end of the day, making boundaries for something that you are supposed to mortify ultimately won't get the job done. So if you want to, to know the victory of Christ and be able to walk in that, you have to go to war in the battlefield of your mind. 
And you need to win with a renewed mind, controlled by the Spirit as you input God's Word into it consistently. Not a caged mind controlled by the flesh. A renewed mind controlled by the Spirit. You see, you have to understand it's a spiritual conflict. And since it's a spiritual conflict, there must be a spiritual cure. And I've used this example before, but if the doctor tells you that you have cancer, that's not something you go to Walmart and and go to the, the OTC line to heal from. The problem and the cure have to match. So until you get your mind fixed, until you understand what a true relationship with God looks like and how you walk in him, the same way you received him, you walk in him that same way. And you walk, how do you do that? So the faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The faith that you placed in Christ, you're going to walk in that. And you do it by the word of God. And you, you, you got to go to work right up here. You know, these few inches you got there, it's, some of it's less than, I'm less than most of you I got up here. But, but listen, it's a hard fight. And you got to renew that. And the only way you renew it, Romans 12, book of Ephesians tells you, it's through God's word. And that's how you walk in victory. And it's available to everybody. It's available to everybody. But until you do it God's way, you might see some success for a while. But it's not sustainable. You'll be just like Israel. And you'll fall back. And you'll fall back. And you'll fall back. And then God has to deal with you. And that brings us to the sixth attribute of God seen in this prayer. The first five have been all positive. All great. God is awesome. And interestingly enough, the number five in the Bible, I believe for the most part, represents death. But it also pictures grace. And those first five attributes of God all picture the grace of God. But, but there's a sixth thing that he also does, and he does in our life as well, and that's he chastises. Look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee, right? He had given them the land. He had done all this. They're still disobedient. They rebelled against thee. Cast thy law behind their backs. Think of that picture. That's his, that is his word. How many of us are going through life and we're taking his word and we're walking out our door and as we leave our house, we toss it behind us and we leave it behind. We go through life trying to figure it out on our own. That's what they did. So they, they, they cast thy law behind their back and slew thy prophets, which testified against them. Please don't do that. To turn thee and they wrought great provocations. Therefore thou deliverest them into the hands of their enemies who vexed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried unto thee, thou hurtest them from heaven. According to thy manifold mercies, thou gavest them saviors who saved them out of the hands of their enemies. But after they had rest, after things got good again, you know, and, and we see this all the time, when you're struggling and when life is hard and when, when you hit, hit the bottom, you come to God and praise the Lord. That's exactly the right response. But when things get good again, you go right back when you get rest. Because after they had rest, in verse 28, they did evil again before thee. Therefore leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou hurtest them from heaven. And many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies, and testified against them that thou mightest bring them again into thy law. Yet they dealt proudly, hearken not unto thy commandments, but sin against thy judgments. Which if a man do, he shall live in them, and withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and would not hear. You see, the Lord fought for them, and they would give victory, but they just kept going back to their sin and their pride. The history of the nation of Israel is the story of Proverbs 26:11. As a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. But sadly, that describes some believers too. And while a fool in the Bible is someone who doesn't believe in God, there are many Christians acting a fool. That's for sure. And what we can learn from Nehemiah 9 is that God does not put up with it forever. For Israel, God delivered them into the hands of their enemies. Their conquests turned into defeats. 
And that was in fulfillment of God's promise to, the, to their nation in Deuteronomy 25. We've already looked at that. And for us, you know, it might look a little differently than it did for Israel. But either way, chastisement usually isn't fun. But it does have a purpose. Hebrews 12, 11 says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And earlier in Hebrews 12, we see that the chastening of the Lord, it's a good thing because it actually proves that you are one of his and it proves he loves you. It's what a good parent does because you want your children to be brought back into proper focus. When they're out of line, you need to bring them back in line. And we get so easily distracted from the mission that sometimes we need the gentle discipline of the Lord. And sometimes we need a two-by-four across the face. But either way, it's out of love. Its purpose is to get us back into focus with him because attribute number seven is he convicts. You see, the point of chastisement, again, it has a purpose. It yields that peaceable fruit because the point of it is to get us to recognize our wrong. And that's exactly what the children of Israel do here. Look at how they describe this, starting in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 33. Howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us. Everything that's happened to us, God, we deserved it. For thou hast done right, but we've done wickedly. Neither of our kings, our princes, our priests, nor our fathers kept thy law, nor hearkened unto thy commandments and thy testimonies wherewith thou didst testify against them. For they have not served thee in their kingdom and in thy great goodness that thou gavest them. And in the large and fat land which thou gavest before them, neither turn they from their wicked works. They say, God, you're right. You're just. And we were wrong. And they felt the heaviness and the conviction of their sin. And again, it wasn't even all of their individual. It was the past and their fathers and their father's fathers. And we've talked about that through this book too. And listen, if you and I ever want a relationship with God the way he designs it, we got to go through this process at times too. And we got to feel his conviction and understand the weight of our sin. And we need to see our sin in light of God's holiness. And that should drive conviction in us. And we talked about a couple, just a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, we talked about the difference in conviction versus guilt. But but that's something so important to understand. I want to remind you of just a couple points. The same thing we went through. Because Paul gives us great clarity. We looked at 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. And he calls conviction godly sorrow. And he calls that guilt, that sorrow of the world. For godly sorrow work is repentance to salvation. It has, a, it has an end. Not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world work of death. And while there may be legitimate reasons... For us to feel guilty, guilt isn't what builds our relationship with the Lord. Only conviction from above does that. Because conviction ultimately deals with our relationship with God. And it's an understanding of how we have offended God, not just someone else. It was the example of David with his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And he's confessing that and getting it right in Psalm 51 and verse 4. He says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Well, he obviously did wrong against people, but his sin was against the Lord. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. You see, it's only that godly sorrow, that conviction from the Holy Spirit that leads to real solution for us. And sorrow of the world or, or the guilt, it, it leads to death. That's what it says. Separation from God. And, and maybe it helps fix the horizontal relationships, but it can't fix your vertical relationship, and that's the one that matters the most. So when God convicts us, he's wanting to do something in us. And guess what he's wanting to do? He's wanting to create in us something new. Because these attributes of God work in a continuing circle in our relationship with him. I've told you before, the Christian life isn't linear. And we go through seasons and we go through ups and downs. We're all a work in process and work in progress. And God wants to continue creating in us newness of life. And, and hear what I'm saying. 
I'm not saying we lose our salvation when we sin and we're getting saved over and over again. That's absolutely not happening. I'm not talking about salvation here. The Bible very clearly teaches eternal, eternal security and once you are genuinely saved, you are always saved. Praise the Lord for that doctrine. But God wants to continually work in our life through renewal in our new man. Colossians 3.10, and I put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. See, the creation is already before. We're in the image of, of, of the one that created him, but he wants to renew us in the knowledge of him. And we're saved, but we need that continual renewal in our mind. We already talked about that in our spirit. And that's not a one-time deal. In fact, that's a daily deal. So he creates, he calls, he covenants, he shows compassion, he conquers, he chastises, and he convicts. And those seven attributes of God show us how our relationship with him is designed to work. And God's ways do work. But at the end of the day, it's up to us whether we're going to get on board with his ways or not. Because the question is, is never, does God's way work? It's whether or not we're going to take his way. Because so many of us don't. And we try to go through life our own way. That was Israel's past. That's what they just rehearsed. But this group of Jews that we find here in Nehemiah chapter 9, they want to do it differently. Genuinely, they are doing it for the right reasons. They want to do it God's way. And this gives us the final step in moving from repentance to relationship. Because this prayer ends with the recording of a promise. They make a covenant, a promise to God. Look at verse 36. Behold, we are servants this day. And for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yieldeth much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominions over our bodies and over our cattle at their pleasure. And we're in great distress. Right? We've been in captivity all this time. Even now that, that we're back in Jerusalem, they don't have control. The Persians were still in control, and the kings were, 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 the, were the Persians at this time. And so they, they had control of the cattle and their bodies, everything. But look at verse 38. And because of all of this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal into it. And we'll get into more of that next week. But the chapter that begins in repentance, it ends in surrender, Full surrender, acknowledging that they are servants of the Lord and acknowledging that they're in this situation because of their own doing and they're making a covenant, they're making a promise to do it better starting today. It ends with them making a promise to the Lord. This is a great result of their prayer meeting because their prayers led to action. And what a great marker for us too. Do your prayers change you? Do they draw you closer to God? Or are your prayers only designed to draw God closer to you? We talked about that last week. God communicates and we respond. And our response is to be based upon what he has said. You see, in prayer, we are to move closer to him and not desire him to move closer to us. So they draw close to God and are willing to record their promise, their covenant. We're going to see next week at the beginning of chapter 10, all, that chapter starts with all those who sign it. It was recorded. We've talked about this throughout the study of this book. There, the interesting thing about this book is there are multiple lists of names, but they all have great meaning. We saw the workers in chapter 3. We saw the genealogy of those who returned to the land in chapter 7. And next week we're going to see those that are, that are on this covenant that have signed, making a promise to do things by the word of God. And some 2,500 years later, we're still reading the names of those that stood up and did something for the Lord. And standing up to be counted is a worthy endeavor being bold enough to say, count me in. Write my name down. I'm willing. 
I'll do it. The problem is many make promises and they don't keep them. This was Israel over and over again. One such example is 2 Chronicles 15, 12. It says, and they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. The problem is it just didn't last. I mean, and ultimately, it's, it's not going to last past this group of Nehemiah. This group, they had the right heart. They wanted to do it right, but I mean, it, it doesn't continue. I mean, shortly after, some 40 years after, 45 years after the happenings of the book of Nehemiah, God goes silent because of Israel's rebellion. And it didn't last. And the real question is, will it last with you? Because vowing a vow isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing, but, but not keeping is bad. We know that from Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he had no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow, that thou shouldest vow and not pay. But if you want to build for the Lord and glorify him with your life, you have to be willing to stand up and be counted. And then follow through. Don't expect someone else to do the work that you said you would do. Or let me put it this way. Don't expect any success in spiritual warfare until you get off spiritual welfare. I said it and I mean it. Don't live off another person's relationship with the Lord. Build your own and follow through. Get to work. Don't say you will work and then not do it or do it for a while and when it gets hard you quit. No, put your name down. And join us in the mission. You see, there are, there are people out there that, you know, for a lack of a better term, I call spiritual squatters. And they show up every now and then. But they don't help. They don't give. They don't pray. They don't participate. And if you're new around here, I'm not talking about you. Take the time you need to figure out who we are and what we're about. The new members luncheon next Sunday is a great place to start. But if you've been around here for a few years and you know who we are and what we're about and, and the spiritual squatter statement kind of describes you, can I ask you a question? How long will it take before you decide to link arms with us? Don't you think it's time to grow and begin glorifying God with your life? If not now, then when? What else do you need? Make a promise with the opportunity that God is giving you today. But make sure you follow through. Repent and start building a real relationship with the Lord. That's how you move from repentance to relationship. You recognize his perfection. You rehearse the past. You see him and how he works through his various attributes in relationship. And then you record a promise and you're willing to stand up and say, I'm on the team. Let's get to work. And when we all are doing that, we will make a difference. And this church will bring God glory. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And I just want to encourage you very quickly with what I said earlier. God's given you an opportunity today. And I don't know what that opportunity is. Maybe it's, it's to meet him for the very first time that you don't know him as your personal savior. And if that's you and there's never been a time in your life where you have prayed to him and asked him to save you in faith, that's your opportunity right now. The opportunity God has given you is to enter into relationship with him. But maybe you already know him. And, and, and God is giving you an opportunity today too. God's given me an opportunity today for something. Will you ask him what that is and be willing to stand up and be counted and get to work and do what he has called each and every one of us to do. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again so much for your word. Thank you for this story of, of Nehemiah and these guys that 2,500 years later we can see the names of them 
written down. And we'll look at them specifically next week, but, but we've seen this in chapter 3 and in chapter 7. And, and Lord, what a great encouragement that is to me. And Lord, I pray for everybody here. I, I, I know that, that, that sometimes uh, the things that we say up here are harsh. And, and Lord, we mean them because it's true to your word. And yet, I, I, I say it in love. I love everybody here. And Lord, I, I say it because I know what's best for them. And I know what a relationship with you can do in their life. And Lord, I desire that for them. So if there's anyone here that needs to meet you today, I pray that they will surrender to, to that, uh, surrender to that calling. And if they have questions about that, they can come up and talk to us. And if there's anybody that needs to get right with you, that they would not waste another day. They would take the opportunity that you're given today. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.